to pray before we jump into this text. Our Father, we come to you again in prayer, and it is good to do such because our, our need is so, um, is on you. We need you. And so we lean into your, into your grace and into your spirit's power to awaken us to your word. We pray that you would do that and somehow speak through, through me, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I have this uh, recurring dream, and here it is. And this is it's a very specific dream, and it's a dream that a lot of people have, I've found out. Here's the dream. We're, it's college. I'm in college. I'm a student in college, and, you know, semester's rolling around just fine, like all the classes, like doing, doing the work, doing the, the grunt, getting through. But there's this one class that I just keep skipping or sleeping through, or I'm just, I haven't even showed up to the class once. I haven't even gotten the syllabus. I don't even know what I'm missing. And the semester rolls around, all those other classes are going just fine, but it's one class. And then I get this deeply unsettled feeling in me because finals has arrived, finals week. And I know that it's judgment day for this class that I've not been showing up for. It's an examination day. It's very unsettling. Now, you'll see the title of the sermon. I don't, it's Judgment and Examination, right? Maybe you're thinking this is the worst sermon title ever. Judgment, examination? These are like painful terms. We don't like these terms. The reason why that dream bothers me is because that's what that dream is really about. Judgment, examination. Now, You'll recall last week, we looked at Jesus transforming water to wine. And it, it, it was miraculous, and it was a sign. That's what John said. He said it was a sign. So in other words, it pointed to something else. And this is what it pointed to. Just as Jesus took uh, water, a, a party that was on the decline, Jesus transformed it and made it a party on the incline, Right? The best party ever. The best wine was served, and it was a lavish amounts of wine. It was lavish wine in quality. And we've said that what G John is saying here is, look, life in the kingdom of Jesus is not like life in this world. The parties of this world grow in, in disappointment. There's hangover. There's regret. But life in the kingdom of God is like a party marked by ever-deepening joy. The wine always runs out in the parties of this world. The wine always gets better in Jesus' kingdom. That's what John is saying. And then we get this passage that we just read. That Jesus does not seem like the party master here, right? I mean, he's creating quite a dramatic scene in this, in this episode, in the temple. Maybe you're, out, you're, you're, you're not a Christian, you're kind of checking Christianity out, and, and you're thinking, yep, this sounds about right. Party Jesus. No, I don't like Christianity because I don't like this idea of a judging God, right? Maybe, maybe you think to yourself, I've, I, I had dreams, I have wishes, those things have not panned out. I can't even attain my own standard for how my life should go, much less God's standard. The last thing I need is this judging God who's just waiting for me to screw up, to have a misstep, 
so he can bring forth his judgment. And this is what Christianity is like, and I don't like Christianity as a result. Let me say this. Not so fast, okay? This passage here is going to tell us three things, okay? The first is why we need a judge, why Jesus is the judge we need, and then finally, how to pass his final exam. How to pass Jesus' final exam. So why we need a judge, why Jesus is the judge we need, and how we can pass his, his final exam. So first, why, why do we need a judge? Okay, verse 13, this is Passover, and you see Jesus and his family are, are making their way to Jerusalem, like Jews from all over the world. These uh, J- Jewish folk are, are, are coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and you, you'll recall the Passover is, is marking the Exodus experience, the, the Hebrews departing Egypt, you remember the great plague where the destroyer came in and wiped out the firstborn of all the livestock and all the children, all the households, except for those who had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts and the destroyer passed over those households. And so the Jews are celebrating this. And so Jews, it's a pilgrim holiday. Jews from all over the world are coming and Jesus, a good Jewish Jew, is, is making his way to, 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 to the temple. Now, there were some entrepreneurial Jews, year after year this Passover happens, all these dispersed Jews come back to Jerusalem, and they had an idea, right? We can make some money, because part of Passover involved the sacrifice of animals. So why make people bring animals and livestock across the world to sacrifice? Why not set up business and sell the livestock upon arrival, and they purchase them? It's a legitimate business need. But what had happened was that practice slowly worked its way in to the temple, to the outer court of the temple, and eventually supplanted the purpose of the temple. The outer court of the temple was the place where the Gentiles would come and worship God. And business interests elbowed that purpose to the margins, and commerce landed in the center. That's the problem. Look look at what Jesus does. Verse uh, 15. Making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep, the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And then he says this, verse 16. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is very dramatic scene. I mean, Jesus is with a whip driving these animals out. He's flipping tables over. He's pouring out the the money, the coins, the money that has been collected. It's a scene. And note the contrast of it from last week. Remember last week, Jesus quietly extending joy at a party on the margins, Cana, out in the middle of nowhere. And here he is in the heart of Jewish society the temple, and it's busy, and it's public, and it's a, it's a visible demonstration of his judgment. But what Jesus is doing, he's not, he's, not, he's not overturning anything here. He's flipping the purpose of the temple back on its head, because for many, many years, the Jewish leadership responsible for kind of maintaining and taking care of the temple, stewarding the temple, had failed, and they'd overturned the purpose of the temple. Now Jesus is trying to flip it back around. 
And then the Jews ask, look, uh, look at what they, they ask in verse 18. What sign do you show us for doing these things? Okay, now this is important. Jesus is God. The temple is the dwelling place of God. Jesus is in his house. He's in his house. He can do what he wants in his house. He, can he, he is the judge of his house. Right? And they flip the purpose upside down. And here he is in the temple. And he's bringing about judgment. The rightful judge, Jesus, is judging what is taking place in his house, in his world, among his people. And then the, and then the Jews say, well, who do you think you are to do this? Show us some kind of sign that they're, they're, they're becoming the judge of the judge. They're judging his actions, right? Not only have they overturned the purpose of the, the temple, but they're overturning their position as it relates to Christ, and they're becoming the judge. Prove to us that you can do this. They're putting God on the dock. And it's not their prerogative to judge God. It's his prerogative to judge them. And this is... I think the fundamental problem for us. This is what fallen humanity does. We flip things around. We, we overturn things from where they're supposed to be, right? In the last uh, 40 years, at least in America, there's a lot of churches that have said, you know what? Um, we live in a consumer society. Our people are consumers. The people we're trying to reach are consumers. So what we need to do is make the church worship experience like a consumer experience. We, we need people to have a seamless transition from their life of consuming to their life of worship. And so we're going we're gonna to try to model our church as though we were like a shopping mall to provide a consumer experience. Maybe even in this, in this part of the country, um, it's... There's kind of some social capital that's gained from coming to church, right? It's very possible that we, we come to church to serve our business interests because being at church allows us to make some, some good connections, allows us to network, allows us to bolster our own business practices, right? Uh, you, it extends beyond the church, right? Yuval Levin, is a, he's kind of a conservative political uh, commentator. He's written a book recently. He's gotten a lot of attention on conservative, liberal, the whole spectrum. And he says this. He says that our institutions historically have been formative institutions. They, they're, they're, they're things that shape us into the people that we ought to be. And he says the problem for us is that they have become performative institutions. So for example, Congress, rather than getting anything done, forming our country, they see their position as a performance. Gain Twitter following. Get primetime segment on cable news or whatever it is, right? Flipping their role on its head. Just a quarter of a mile down here, there is a hub. I'm told, I've been told from several people, I don't know this firsthand, but um, several folks have mentioned that this is a, a hub, a, a transition point for um, abducted children and orphans south of us to be dispersed 
across the country and perhaps the globe in a human trafficking ring. It's just happening, just down the way, right? Rather than caring for the most helpless and the most marginalized among us, we exploit them. This is what fallen humanity does, right? And here's the fundamental problem. Whether it's coming to church with a bad motivation or trafficking human beings, the fundamental problem is this. We live our lives, let me put it this way, the Westminster Confession, it says, what's our purpose? First question, what's our purpose? Do you remember what the answer is? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I'll paraphrase it. Our purpose is to live our lives in orbit around God, in his bright, blazing glory. And here's what we've all done. We've traded that to live our lives in orbit around ourselves. This is what fallen humanity does. And out of that reorientation comes all of these problems, all of these brokenness, all of this brokenness. And to the extent that we're not happy with the world as it is, we want to judge. We want to judge. We need a judge. Miroslav Volf, he's a, he's a Yale the, uh, theologian. He teaches at Yale. And he said, you know, it's American and Western European middle to upper class uh, folks that have such a problem with the judging God. If you go to the third world, they have no problem with the judging God. He, both grew up in Croatia in the midst of a civil war. And he said, if you, if you saw your, your, your loved ones, your sisters and your mothers, uh, awful things done to them and then murdered before your eyes, and you saw your brothers and fathers brutally murdered before your eyes, the only thing to keep you sane is the idea of a judging God. We need a, a God that judges. And the, so, again, the Jews, they, they want this sign, and Jesus responds to this request, like, who do you think you are? Show us the sign. Jesus responds, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, a little background here. They've been building this thing for four, more than four, almost 50 years. They've been working. Herod the Great said, let's refurbish the second temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in the 6th sixth, sixth century, and then, um, and then post-exile, they, they build a new temple, and then Herod decides to kind of beautify, renovate it. So the, there's scaffolding all around this temple, and it's being worked on, and it'd be, it would be worked on for another 30-plus years from this point. It wouldn't get completed until 64 A.D., the renovations. And then you may recall, in 70 A.D., Rome wipes it to the ground, destroys it. So they've got the scaffolding, they've got the people working, and, and, and they're thinking, three days, you're going to raise it up? Do you know how long this thing is taken to build, build? Well, now Jesus could raise it up in an instant. Almighty God can do that. But he was referring to his body, the temple of his body. So, again, first point, this is why we need a judge. This is why we need a judge. Because we have this penchant for flipping things, flipping the purpose of things on its head. And it creates waves of brokenness and pain and hurt and sorrow. We need a judge. Second point, why Jesus is the judge we need. 
why Jesus is the judge we need. Um, verses 23 through 25. Look at what it says. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, Jesus has this discerning eye. Like he sees straight through us, into us, into our hearts. He's all the way down. He understands the inner workings of our heart better than we do. He has an ability to examine. In, 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 in Revelation, it's his eyes are described as, as being lit, a flame, right? They're like on fire. And the idea is that he sees, and his gaze is so deep and piercing, it, it, it purifies what it sees. It has this purifying power. And here we see it. He knows what's going on in their hearts. Imagine you're, you're interviewing for a job, and the interviewer can see straight into you. They know when you're improving upon the truth. They know when you're lying. They know how you're going to perform in the job. That's a frightening prospect. Or maybe it's on like a, a date, and you're dated. You finally got the date of your, of your dreams, but the date can see straight into you. All the way down. They see who you are. They see your heart. That's frightening. I mean, the whole dating process is about concealing for as long as possible the warts and blemishes that you have. They can see all the way in. And that's what, that's what John is, is saying here, that Jesus knows what's in man. He has this penetrating gaze, and he sees all the way down to the heart. And that's why he's the judge that we need. I mean, I... We have little sibling skirmishes on a daily basis. And so many times, my head's just spinning. Like, I don't, know how to, I don't know how to judge in this skirmish, much less judge the world. But Jesus can see, see straight in. He knows. He knows motivations. He knows it's better than we do. So the, the, the natural question that comes out of that is this. How can we pass his final exam? Right? If Jesus sees all the way down. How can we survive his, his gaze? How can we stand amidst his judgment? What hope is there for us? Well, John doesn't answer that question in this text. He, he answers it later. But in order to kind of relieve the tension, I want us to step outside of John's gospel and look at a couple of episodes in Mark's gospel where we see Jesus look straight into a person sees exactly what's going on. We're going to see how they, they react. So the first is the rich young ruler. This is Mark chapter 10. We're just, real, real quickly, you can turn there if you like. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and following. Uh, it, says that, it says that as, as uh, Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. 
And the rich young man said, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. You see, you see this guy. He runs up to Jesus. He got like a little spring in his step. He's sort of like the fit fitness nut that loves to go to the physical because the doctor's going to say, wow, you're in really good shape. Your resting heart rate is, is incredible. You must work out, don't you? Well, I guess I do. He's, he feels ready to be in the presence of Jesus. And he says, look, he says, I've not, he's kept the whole Ten Commandments from his youth. There were no rebellious teenage years. I mean, this guy is crushing it. And then look at what Jesus says. And Jesus, looking at him, seeing all the way down into his heart, loving him, said to him, you lack. The guy that, look, this is important, the guy that has it all. This guy has the best resume of anybody that Jesus encounters in Mark's gospel. He's rich, which means that God had been blessing not just him, but his, his forefathers, which meant that God's hand was blessing was on him for generations. He's rich. He's kept all the commandments, at least in his own eyes, he has. Um, he's got it all. But Jesus says, no, you lack. You, you lack one thing. You lack because you have. So here's what you need to do. You need to get rid of what you have. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. And look at the response. Disheartened by the saying, the rich young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. See, this is how, this is how Jesus is piercing gaze. The people that have, that kind of got it all put together on the surface, they lack. They lack before Jesus. Now look, Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, this is the second person, verses 24 through 30. Uh, Mark 7, verses 24 through 30. And from there, Jesus went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is like Tyre and Sidon. This is dirty Gentile country. A Jew that hears this is thinking, oh, I, is the, I don't know if there's a geographical region or place that you're kind of like, I don't like that. That's whatever that place is. Don't say it out loud. Whatever that place is, that's Tyre and Sidon for the, for the Jew. This is dirty Gentile country. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. And listen to this. This is like her resume right here. Mark's kind of given us all the insight we need to know about her. One, she's a woman, which, uh, is, as wrong as it is in this age, was not a really qualifying uh, fact. She's a Gentile disqualification. And not only is she a Gentile, but she's a Syrophoenician. These are the Jews' enemies for, for centuries, for millennia. These are historic enemies. She's got all these problems. Warts and blemishes galore. And then she begs him to cast the demon out of her daughter and look at what he says to her. This is what Jesus says to the Syrophoenician woman. Let the children, he's talking about the children, his Jews, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, the Gentiles. Sounds kind of a bit offensive, doesn't it? And then she answered him, and this is important. Look, okay, so far in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been speaking in parables, and not one person has understood what he said. Not even his disciples. They don't understand at all. 
This is the first person in Mark's gospel to actually understand what Jesus is saying. And not only does she understand the parable that Jesus is speaking, but she's able to insert herself into the parable and respond in a parable manner back to Jesus. Look at what she says. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. She receives the miraculous, merciful power of God Almighty. The rich young ruler who's got the perfect resume lacks because he has. He doesn't receive what Jesus has to offer. This is how we pass his final exam. Listen to what Dane Ortland says. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Nothing but coming to him is required. First at conversion and a thousand times thereafter until we are with him upon, true, upon death. This is the judge that we need. Remember what John said? We saw his glory full of grace and truth, right? We saw his grace. We saw his favor upon the wedding at Cana. We see his truth being manifested in the temple where he's setting things straight. We need that. And all we must do to pass his final is come to him and receive what he has to offer. Bring all that we lack to him. And he, he fills us up. He swallows us up in his love and in his grace, in his favor. If we don't, we'll be swallowed up in his judgment. That's the promise. And do you see what this means? This is, this is really incredible. The one person who can see us all the way down loves us unlike any other. That we can be fully known and fully loved? That's incredible, right? I mean, our great fear is to be fully known and be kicked to the curb because we're rejected. But that's not how it is. The one person that can see all the way down to who we are has love unimaginable for us. And the reason he can do that is because the judge took our judgment upon himself on the cross and received God's wrath against us. And we got his righteousness, his perfect record, so that we can receive all of his blessings eternally, forever, in his party that never ends. So, so let's, let's go back to this college dream. Remember, you haven't showed up for the class at all. Uh, no, don't have the syllabus. Let's imagine on that finals day, I walk into the class. This is, this, is, this, is, this is what's going on here in this gospel. I walk into the class, and the professor says, we're so glad you're here. We've missed you. I've, in fact, I've got a syllabus for you. It's, it's not of much use now, but I've been holding it on just in case. So glad you're here. We've missed you this whole semester. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something I don't normally do. I've got this student. She has been to every class. She's done every reading assignment. She's done the recommended reading, 
which I've never had anybody do. Her papers are killer. In fact, I've encouraged her. She's going to send them off to peer-reviewed journals. I think they'll get published because they're, they're, they just she knocked it out of the park every time. She, I've never had a better student. Perfect score. And I'm going to give her, I'm going to give, she's going to get your record of failure, and I'm going to give you, on your transcript, her record of perfection. And then imagine this, the professor says. And not only that, I'm going to adopt you as my child. And everything that is mine, and this is a wealthy professor, most rich professor, I know this thing's breaking down, but this is the wealthiest professor ever. Everything that is mine is yours. Because you're my adopted child. You're heir to all that I have. It sounds crazy, right? But, but this is what the gospel is. This is what's happened to us in Christ. Do you see the shock of it? Do you see his glory full of grace and truth? Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for your love towards us. It is astounding. It's scandalous. It's not what we would expect. It is so contrary, in fact, to how the world operates. Um, our greatest fear is to be fully known because we're afraid that we would be rejected. But you know us. You examine. You know us better than we know ourselves. And you still love us with a love unimaginable. A love that heals. A love so great that it actually puts us back together uh, and, and makes us into your image. And we pray that you would do that to us. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.